The brain has a capacity for learning that is virtually limitless, which makes every human being a potential genius. Michael J. Gold. I want to welcome you back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast, where we bridge the gap between theory and practice with strategies, tools, and ideas that we can all use immediately applied to the most current brain research to heighten productivity in our schools, our sports environments, and modern workplaces. I'm Andrea Samadhi and launched this podcast almost four years ago to share how important an understanding of our brain is for our everyday life and results. For today's episode number 276, we'll go back to one of our early episodes, number 119, on the key ingredients of learning with our brain in mind and take a look at what I picked out as the key ingredients for learning back then and see how new research has informed this area today. When I went back to review this episode, there were some ingredients in this learning equation that we've talked about often on this podcast, and the new research I found was eye-opening. The new research took what we covered so beautifully on those early episodes to a whole new level, showing me why it's important to go back to the basics and see what strategies are effective and why. Before I get to what's new, let's look back at where our podcast began and where we were focused on with learning with our brain in mind. We can go right back to our first interview, episode three, with Ron Hall from Valley Day School, who mentioned how things changed for him when he met Horacio Sanchez and began teaching with brain science in mind. This is the whole reason why we're going back to the basics this season, as we connect the new research to our past episodes to strengthen where we are in our process of building a stronger, more resilient 2.0 version of ourselves in 2023 and beyond. It's always easy to look back and connect the dots like Steve Jobs' famous quote and trust that these dots will connect again in the future with new meaning that's evolved with time, knowledge, and understanding. As I glanced at our early interviews, Greg Wolcott from Episode 7 on Building Relationships in Today's Classrooms was our next guest in this learning equation, as he was the first guest to mention that his work and his book, Significance 72, was inspired by New Zealand professor John Hattie. John Hattie became well known for his two books, Visible Learning and Visible Learning for Educators, that focused on teaching strategies that have a high probability of being effective. You can read directly from John Hattie himself as he connects his dots looking backwards, where he says he believes he got some parts wrong with his approach to learning in the classroom. He shares that he'd like to stop looking at the strategies teachers are using and look closer at the impact we have on our students and how they learn best when he reflects on the fact that we need to switch from saying, I care about how you teach, to saying, I care about the impact of your teaching. Hattie goes on to talk about the criticism he faced with the term visible learning because learning isn't visible at all. As John Hattie now prepares to release Visible Learning, the sequel, this March, and that's 15 years after his first book sold out in the days of its release and it was described as teaching's holy grail, 
he's returning to his groundbreaking work with a new angle. Like the direction we're taking with this podcast, going back to the basics, that's what Professor John Hattie is doing with his next book, where he not only looks at what works best with learning, as he shares the research that's new, that's now informed by more than 2,100 meta-analysis, that's more than double than what appeared in his first book, drawn from more than 130,000 studies, and is involved with more than 400 million students all over the world. He then asks, why did these strategies work so well, with some thoughts of how we can all improve learning using current and future research. I remember back to my early days of teaching when we were observed by our school principal and then given feedback for how effective our lessons were. And I remember thinking how this process was such a waste of time because the students were behaving differently knowing their teacher was being evaluated. I knew there wasn't much learning happening other than finding a way to beat the system to have my students behave in this artificial environment. True learning, Hattie points out, happens when a teacher has to adapt a lesson as they notice the students who might be missing the point and they need a new way to learn. Hattie noticed you can't simply watch a teacher and understand how and why they make decisions. You have to hear them think, evaluate, and adapt. Professor John Hattie takes this new knowledge and tells us that Australia has now gone with a new method of observation where they ask expert teachers to consider a lesson they're planning to deliver and then record themselves talking through their planning. Then the lesson is filmed. The expert teacher then records themselves again, explaining the decisions they made in the moment. The two recordings are then layered over the video, and this allows those who watch the videos to hear what the teacher is thinking in real time. Hattie believes that this is where the research is turning to, with more thinking aloud and dialogue around learning. He goes on to project that there'll be a massive breakthrough in automation of classroom observation, and teachers will improve because of it. I can already see useful technology emerging in the corporate workplace that uses artificial intelligence to score a sales employee on their presentations, providing immediate feedback on specific metrics, including content, articulation, and even picking out keywords to help improve presentation skills. The future of learning is evolving, and it undeniably involves an understanding of our brain. Frederica Fabricius on episode 27 was the next to contribute to our formula of learning and achieving peak performance as we began to connect the neurochemicals involved in those high levels of achievement where peak performance or flow occurs. Our next guest to help us to decipher this formula for learning was Kent State University's Dr. John Donlosky from episode 37 on improving student success some principles from cognitive science. I'll never forget when the lights went on for me when I first heard Dr. Donlosky speak in 2016 on an Ed Week webinar about deliberate practice being one of the most effective learning strategies versus cramming to learn something new, whether it's a new skill in the classroom or a sport. This led us to episode 38 on the daily grind in the NHL with Todd Woodcroft, who was at the time an assistant coach with the Winnipeg Jets. 
His episode covered the importance of the daily grind or doing the same things every day for predictable results in the pro sports world. I could keep going through our episodes and connecting the guests who spoke about the key ingredients of learning, but as we move towards the current research, I want to start with what we first identified with learning with the brain in mind. On today's episode number 276, on looking back at the key ingredients of learning, we'll cover a review of the key ingredients of learning from our early episodes that include motivation and repetition. We looked back on John Hattie's research with his groundbreaking book, Visible Learning, as he prepares to release Visible Learning, the sequel, to see what's new when it comes to teaching and learning in the classroom. Then we'll look at what's new with learning in the brain using Dr. Andrew Huberman's research. We'll see how we can learn new skills faster with our brain in mind, and we'll give some thoughts on the future of learning. So what does Dr. Andrew Huberman's research say about learning new skills faster? When I looked up at what was new in this area, I didn't need to go anywhere else other than Stanford professor Dr. Andrew Huberman and his Huberman Lab podcast. I found two very thorough episodes that were similar in content, both close to two hours in length. You can access each of his episodes by clicking on the link in the show notes. But for today's episode, I wanted to take the research and tie it to what we already know about learning with some steps for how we can use this research in the future. I took his podcast number 20 on how to learn skills faster that was published a year ago. In 2022, a year after I took a stab at explaining the key ingredients of learning. I remember listening to this episode while exercising and thinking that I really needed to take notes as he went into depth on the science behind acquiring new skills, affirming that we'd uncovered some of the most important ingredients, specifically with the repetition of a new skill and with motivation. I remember thinking it would have been good to know this as a former PE teacher, and I'll be sure to copy my friend Dan Viglatore, who trains our next generation of educators with what's new and innovative for PE teachers in the classroom at York University in Toronto. Or even just thinking back to those early episodes, it was clear why doing things a certain way, whether it's learning a new skill in the classroom, for athletic performance, or in the workplace, that tapping into the science of learning, improving what we already know works with this learning process, will take everything to a deeper level for all of us. So according to Dr. Andrew Huberman, here's how to learn anything faster. There's four steps. Step one, Dr. Huberman explains there are two types of skills. There's open loop and there's closed loop skills. And you'll want to be able to distinguish between these two skills. Open loop skills is a skill that when it's completed, you'll know you did it right or not. It would be like if a gymnast was doing a backflip, they either do the backflip or they mess it up. The only way to do it correctly is to attempt it again if they messed up something and they were scared halfway through. Or like throwing a dart at a dartboard. If the dart goes on the ground, you miss the skill. And the only way to get the skill is to try it again. 
or with a free throw in basketball. I think we've got the point with this skill type. We can either do this skill or we don't. This is an open loop skill. Then there's the closed loop skill, which is a skill that allows for correction while performing the skill. Like if you were running and your coach is giving you tips on your stride or something that you need to change to improve along the way, or if you're playing the drums and you're given instructions on how to speed up or slow down your tempo. This is a closed loop skill. So once you've done step one and you know whether the skill is either an open loop or a closed loop skill, you're going to go to step two. And Dr. Huberman says, we've got to ask ourselves, what should I focus my attention on? And there are three places. It's either going to be auditory attention. So you're listening for something. It's going to be visual attention. You're watching for something or it's proprioception sometimes known as our sixth sense, where we think about where our limbs are in relation to our body as we're performing a certain skill, like being able to walk or kick without looking at our feet. And then step three, your neurobiology will take care of the rest. This is where things get exciting as Dr. Huberman goes in depth with his explanation of how learning something new translates with certain parts of our brain. Without attempting to teach what he explained so well on his podcast, I'm going to just break it down so we can understand the basic ideas that he covers. He says we have central pattern generators that exist in our spinal cord, and it's this part of our brain that generates repetitive movements with skills we've already learned. Things like walking, running, swimming, cycling are all controlled by this part of our brain. The central pattern generator controls already learned behavior. So when you've developed a certain skill, this part of the brain is taking over and controls the movement. I thought here about something Frederica Fabricia said in her first interview with me when we were talking about her book, The Leading Brain, and I asked her about something she wrote on this topic of understanding learned behavior and how it shows up in our brain after years of repetitive practice. She gave two examples of people who didn't rely on their conscious thinking brain because they use their unconscious brain to increase the speed, efficiency, and accuracy of their performance. The first example she used was with Sully Sullenberger's quick thinking with his emergency landing on that plane in the Hudson River, and the other was with Wayne Gretzky, who used his unique hockey sense to skate where the puck will be, not where it is. Frederica explains in her book, The Leading Brain, that there's a common misconception that intuitive decisions are random and they signify a lack of skill. The exact opposite is true, she says. Intuitive decisions are often the product of years of experience and thousands of hours of practice. They represent the most efficient use of your accumulated expertise. So if you're executing a skill that you've spent years learning, you'll be activating this part of your brain, the central pattern generator. So let's say you haven't spent years learning a sport. Like for me with golf, if I swing a golf club, the parts of my brain that will be working are much different than the brain of a golf pro who would be using their central pattern generator. I'd be using the next part of our brain, the upper motor neurons in our cortex that are the neural pathways that control movement. And they're involved with things like picking up a pen, 
or a deliberate action like swinging a golf club. This part of our brain is important to note in the visualization process with skill building that we'll touch on in a minute. Then there's the lower motor neurons in our spinal cord that send messages to our muscles that cause the muscles to move. When it comes to skill acquisition, I'm sure you've all heard of the 10,000 hour rule. Someone just said it to me the other day. And while it does explain that work is involved with learning a new skill, it doesn't explain how we learn that new skill using science. The secret to new skill acquisition, Dr. Huberman says, is not about the hours you put in, it's about the repetition. This made me think back to those early episodes where we took Dr. John Donlosky's research and we connected it with what we know works in the sports world with that daily grind that's required for pro sports athletes. And now Dr. Huberman is adding this new part to his equation. He says, of course, there's a connection between time and repetition, but there's new research that states that it's important what you're focused on as you're learning a new skill. And if you can adjust the number of repetitions that you do, adjusting your motivation for learning, and you'll vastly accelerate your learning. He went on to share study after study that backed this idea up. But without going into the weeds with his research, he says the protocol for learning any skill faster, something that he says has been dubbed online as the Super Mario effect or the test tube experiment, has something to do with stimulating a certain brain area that can lead to vastly accelerating learning. He goes on to say that he's seen this being tested with Lewis Howes on his podcast, How to Learn Anything Fast, where Lewis Howes almost fell off his chair with what he was learning. The issue with this method is that it's being tested now in military environments, and it's not something any of us could use for immediate results, as we'd have to drill holes in our skull to stimulate that certain part of the brain to get those accelerated learning results. And they are doing this in certain places, he says. But what can we do right away with this research? Dr. Huberman says whatever it is we're learning, that we are to perform as many repetitions per unit of time as we possibly can, even if we make errors. And this repeat of performance, even if they're errors, will help us to accelerate skill learning. So we did get the ingredients of learning correct with the emphasis on repetition, but I didn't know that the research now shows that making errors could possibly promote plasticity in the brain and accelerate the learning process. So here's a four-step protocol to help you to learn faster with brain science in mind. First, get as many repetitions in per session, whether it's a sport or going back to Dr. Donlosky with his importance of spaced repetition with learning. Two, pay attention to the errors that you'll make and don't worry about bad habits getting ingrained. You'll know the right actions versus the ones you want to discard. Three, know that neurochemicals are being created from the successful repetitions. And four, the most important part, after the session, rest. Do nothing. Don't even look at your phone for one to five minutes to allow the neurons in the brain to replay the sequences you practiced. The errors will be eliminated and the correct sequences will be played back in your brain. 
What's interesting with Dr. Huberman's research is that he noticed that when you sit and let the brain go idle after this repetition or practice, that the brain will play the sequences backwards as it consolidates learning. And he says they're not sure why, but when you go to sleep, the sequence will be played forward, further consolidating the skill. He also covered using a metronome, this tool you know helps you to play the piano and keeps the tempo, and he says it's a powerful tool to increase the number of repetitions. I thought about how I would use this strategy, and I think it makes the most sense for sports, and I think back to when I was a PE teacher and thought of how I would use this information or even apply it to my girls who practice gymnastics and share with them that it matters how many turns they take when they practice their skill. I asked them, how many times do you practice a backflip and a four-hour practice? And they didn't have a number for me. If they're messing around in practice and then they're taking away from getting these higher repetitions themselves as well as others, I know their coaches do know this, but I'm hoping that the girls understand why the focused repetitions are so important with skill learning. If I were a coach with this brain science in mind, I'd have athletes count the number of reps they're doing with a certain skill in a certain time period and see how each practice they could increase this number. So what does the research say about visualization and learning? I've spent a lot of time covering visualization on this podcast as it's a part of my daily routine. So of course I wondered what Dr. Huberman and the research says about adding mental rehearsal to your learning. While he says that visualization is a powerful tool and that it works, he added not as good as the actual experience of doing the actual physical activity. Dr. Huberman says that closing your eyes and thinking about a sequence of movements and visualizing it in your mind's eye creates the activation of the upper motor neurons that's very similar, if not the same, as the actual movement. But he says that visualization is a good supplement to your learning routine, but not a replacement. To review and conclude this episode on the ingredients of learning, I think we've covered the main ingredients from our episode two years ago, repetition and motivation that comes from the repetition that's crucial for learning. But Dr. Huberman's research on making sure we get as many repetitions as we can per session, even if we make mistakes in the process, did help me to look at learning with a new lens. I also couldn't forget how he said the military is experimenting with stimulating parts of the brain to accelerate learning And I know that years down the line, it might be easier for us to learn a new language or master a new skill in a sport with the advancements in our understanding of brain science. I hope that this episode helped you to think of what else you could do to accelerate learning for your students in the classroom, whether it's with John Hattie's reflections of thinking through an effective lesson or with the tried and true strategies of Dr. John Donlosky of spaced repetition that have been proven to accelerate results in sports in the classroom, or even Dr. Huberman's idea of increasing the amount of repetitions per unit of time without worrying about errors. This episode on learning made me have more questions than I have answers for. It was only two years after we wrote episode 119 that Dr. Andrew Huberman released his new research and the many studies that have emerged about how to accelerate learning with repetition and how our brain is involved in this process. 
Then, 15 years after Professor John Hattie released his groundbreaking visible learning book in the field of education, he now reflects back on artificial intelligence for classroom observation. To end this episode, I'll close with a quote from Mark Zuckerberg, who says that unsupervised learning is the way that most people will learn in the future. You have this model of how the world works in your head, and you're refining it to predict what you think is going to happen in the future. This makes me wonder what will we uncover three years from now? Will we ever be able to find the science that gives us answers to other ways we can learn, like finding answers from our dream world? Will we be able to predict our future somehow, like Mark Zuckerberg suggested, by refining something in our head? While Dr. Huberman says that visualization is a powerful tool that works, he still says it doesn't work as well as actually doing the skill. And he has the data to prove this today. But will we uncover something about our brain and places we can stimulate it without having to drill open our skull in the future that could improve our effectiveness, even if it's a few percentages of improvement? Maybe tweaking something with our visualization process could unlock some of the secrets Jose Silva unlocked in his Silva mind control method that we dove deep into at the end of last year. One thing I know for sure is that I'll never stop asking questions and searching for answers that could help us all be a stronger, more resilient 2.0 version of ourselves. What about you? What questions do you have? How has science informed your learning? I'd love to hear your thoughts on the future of learning. And with that, I'll close out this episode and I'll see you next week as we revisit episode 122 on transforming the mind using athletics and neuroscience. I'll see you next week. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 